Today we come to the seventh and final sermon in our series entitled Making Disciples. Throughout this series, we have identified seven common characteristics of a God-built disciple as are on display through the book of Psalms. We've already discovered that a disciple is one who is dependent upon the word, persistent in prayer, active in worship, has a mission outside the church, has a ministry inside the church, is generous with resources, and today we will discover that a disciple is one who is eager in evangelism. We have often said a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. A disciple is one who knows him personally and makes him known passionately. Succinctly stated, a disciple is one who has Jesus stuffed in us, so inevitably Jesus will stick out of us. So one more time, I invite you to take your Bible and draw your sword, turn to the largest book of the Bible, and give your attention to Psalm 130. Once you've found your place, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 130, please hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you... There is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This particular psalm is one of 15 psalms in a smaller collection called the Songs of Ascent. From Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 134, there are 15 consecutive psalms that were routinely sung as people ascended and made their way up to Jerusalem. Regardless of the direction in which you traveled, it was always stated that you went up to Jerusalem. You ascended Mount Zion. And so these were some of Israel's favorite songs, that as they made a pilgrimage to the sacred city, these were the songs that were on their lips. This was one of Martin Luther's beloved psalms. He said that uh, this psalm must have been penned by the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, he said that tongue-in-cheek because some 3,000 years spanned the writing of this psalm from the days of the Apostle Paul. But what Martin Luther is testifying to is that this psalm has some overarching overtones of salvation according to the Apostle Paul's description in places like Romans and Ephesians and Galatians. Now certainly that does make some sense, doesn't it? After all, the Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him. Jesus is the author of the Bible. Jesus is the subject of the Bible. Jesus is the object of the Bible. It is not that Jesus would send a mixed message when it comes to salvation. No, Jesus consistently stated as he authored Genesis to Revelation that salvation is by God alone apart from human works. 
We see this salvation in Psalm 130. We see this salvation in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We see this salvation that Martin Luther would testify to in the Protestant Reformation, for there was a hallmark statement that said salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is the bedrock of our understanding of salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is in Jesus Christ alone. So we come to a psalm like this, and we realize that uh, this is a psalm that portrays the great salvation of God. When you look at this psalm, I realize there are eight verses. There are four stanzas. Each stanza has two verses. It would appear that the psalmist is showing us a multifaceted dimension of salvation, as if salvation is a diamond. And he wants to turn that diamond four different ways to show us how beautiful God's salvation is to you and to me. For he says that salvation is new life. That's in stanza one, verses one and two. And salvation is new innocence. That's verses three and four. And salvation that we enjoy is a new day. It's verses five and six. And salvation is new freedom. That's verses seven and eight. So let's begin. Salvation is new life. In verses one and two, the psalmist just simply says that from the depths I cried out to you, O Lord. From the depths I cried. The psalmist personifies you and me. He symbolizes your plight and mine. For all of us are sinful to the core of our existence. From the inside to the outside, from the top to the bottom, we are completely and utterly sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the psalmist says that we are drowning and floundering in the sea of sinfulness, out of the depths I cried to you. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of a raging sea is the imagery of chaos, turmoil, suffering, sickness, sadness, sinfulness. That many times when you see an image of a raging sea, especially in this type of poetic literature, it is symbolic of chaos. Perhaps this is best personified in Revelation chapter 21, the very last book of the Bible, John describes the new heaven and the new earth. And when he describes the new heaven and the new earth, he makes this statement, there's no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea. Now, I don't think he means there's no water in heaven. Just one chapter later in Revelation 22, he says that the river of life is flowing from the throne of God in Cutton Main Street right there in heaven. So I don't think that he's saying in one chapter there's no water and the next chapter there is a river of life. No, this is very symbolic. I think that what John is testifying in Revelation chapter 21 when he says there's no longer any sea, he's saying in the new heaven and the new earth, God has purged it of everything sinful. 
There's nothing sinful in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no sadness in heaven. There are no setbacks in heaven. That in heaven, it is a place that is purged of all things sinful. But here on earth, in this moment of time, we are floundering in a sea of sinfulness. Like the psalmist says, out of the depths I cried to you. Our biggest problem as humans, it's not financial. It's not political. Our biggest problem is not racial. Our biggest problem is not relational. Our biggest problem is a sin problem. It was John Owens who said, the disease is sin. And all affliction, regardless of the manner in which it takes shape, is just a symptom. That our sickness, our plight, our, uh, our death is our sinfulness. And we are floundering in that sin and the only hope we have is to cry out to the Lord. Out of the depths, I cried to you. That word cry, it implies that the psalmist spoke it in the past and it still carries present day implications. He asked God to help him and God helped him. He pleaded for mercy and God gave mercy. He asked for new life and God gave new life. He was floundering and drowning in a sea of sinfulness and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord rescued him. It's like the apostle Peter, that as Peter walks on the water, he has his eyes fixed on Jesus, but the moment he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink in the raging sea, and he cries out, Lord, save me, and immediately, the gospel writer tells us, Jesus reached out his hand and rescued Peter. In the same way, the psalmist said, I was drowning in my sinfulness. I cried out to the Lord, and God gave me new life. It's very similar to the character in Jesus' story known as the tax collector who stood at a distance, beat his chest, looked down to the ground, could not even lift his gaze to the heavens. And he voiced a seven-word prayer, a seven-word prayer, and this particular prayer is never denied by the divine. This prayer is always heard by God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God always hears that cry. He always hears that plea for mercy when we acknowledge before him that we are sinful, we're in need of him, and God always responds. Here in the first two verses, the very first stanza of Psalm 130, the psalmist says that salvation is new life. For I was dead and drowning in sin, and God rescued me. He gave me new life. Later, the Apostle Paul will say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I wonder, is there anybody here this morning who could testify that salvation that God gives to you in Jesus Christ is like new life? It's like a new beginning. It is like a fresh start. It is like God telling you, I was dead in my sin, but God in Christ has made me alive unto the Lord. And this morning we could say with the psalmist that salvation is new life. But secondly, he says salvation is new innocence. The scene shifts in verse 3. He goes away from the raging sea, and now in verse 3, he's in a courtroom. And the psalmist says, Oh Lord, if you kept record of sin, who would be able to stand it? If you kept a record of my sin, 
Who would be able to withstand your righteous judgment against me? Oh God, if you kept record of sin, I know your record would be accurate. I know your record could not be disputed. I know that your record of sin would be accurate. And Lord, if you kept a record of my sin and if you issued a condemnation to me based on my sin, for that's what I deserve, who would be able to withstand it? Who would be able to stand in your righteous judgment? Because if you condemned us, we would be condemned already. We'd be condemned justifiably so. Because all of us have sinned. We all fall short continually of the glory of God. And God has declared upon us that we are guilty sinners. He should throw the book at us. And if God kept a record of sin, who among us would be able to withstand his judgment? But then verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. What a glorious phrase. But with you, there is forgiveness. It's that divine conjunction, right? It's that conjunction that God inserts in the, in the sacred script. He inserts in your life and mine. It's a game changer. Everything hinges. Everything swivels. Everything turns because God stepped in. But God is eager to forgive. But in you, there is forgiveness. We've said before, and I'll say it many times still, that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we love the big butts of the Bible. We love those divine conjunctions when God inserts that word, but. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The Apostle Paul will write, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When you come across a divine conjunction like this, it is a game changer. It changes everything. But with you, there is forgiveness. God is so eager to forgive you, friend, that the ancient text simply reads, but with you, forgiveness. He couldn't even write the entire statement. We kind of filled in some of the blank spots because he was so anxious, the writer was. He was so eager to tell you that God is eager to forgive. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what's happened to you, God loves you so much, he's so eager to forgive you, but with you, there is forgiveness. This morning, I wonder, how eager is God to forgive you? How eager is God to forgive you? Just listen to how the scripture writers describe this. Isaiah chapter 38 says that the Lord took your sin and placed it behind his back. What an image. That your sin, God placed behind his back. He's, he, he's, he's uh thrown it behind him. It's just behind him. It ought to be behind you. He's so eager to forgive you. He's thrown your sin behind his back. In a place like Isaiah chapter 43, the prophet simply says that God blotted out all of our transgressions. He blotted them out as if they never happened before. He blotted them out for all time and eternity. He blotted out your iniquity, your transgressions. 
In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet speaks about the suffering servant. Says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That whoever the him is in Isaiah 53, that God placed on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sin was not placed on our shoulders, but placed on his shoulders. And Isaiah is describing that suffering servant. And we know the suffering servant to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is so eager to forgive you. That God says in Psalm 103, that he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? That's pretty far. You can't get any further apart than the east is from the west. And God is so eager to forgive you, he will throw your sin. He'll wind up and throw it as far as the east is from the west. The prophet Jeremiah, he also wanted to chime in on the eagerness of God to forgive So in Jeremiah, we read that the Lord just simply says, I will remember their sins no more. The God who knows everything exhaustively well, this God willingly suffers from amnesia when it comes to your sins and mine. He says, I will remember their sins no more. God is so eager to forgive you, friend, that he wants to forget your sin. He's not going to sweep it on the carpet. He's going to pay the penalty for it, but he wants to forget it. And if God has forgotten your sin, if God has thrown your sin as far as the east is from the west, if God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, if God has thrown your sins to his back, then who are you to bring up your sins again? Because God is so eager to forgive. Now the rebuttal might come, well, if God is so eager to forgive, then it's possible that people would exploit his grace. I mean, if he's going to lavish his love upon us, it just might lead to loose living. I mean, if people know they're going to be forgiven, they'll do whatever they want to do. They'll live however they want to live. They'll say whatever they want to say. They'll go wherever they want to go. If, If they know that God is so eager to forgive, they just might take advantage of his goodness. They just might exploit his grace. His loyal love and lavished love will lead to loose living, right? Look at the very end of verse 4. Therefore, you are feared. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. It was C.H. Spurgeon who defined the word feared as loved and worshipped and served. People aren't going to exploit God's goodness. Why? Because we love him so much. His people are not going to take advantage of his kindness. Why? Because we worship him so much. Because we serve him so much. Because he means so much to us. The last thing on our minds is that we want to take advantage of God's goodness. We want to exploit his grace. So the psalmist just simply says, therefore, you are feared. You are loved. You are worshipped. You are served. There's no way that we would try to take advantage of your goodness unto us. Now, thousands of years later, the apostle Paul would anticipate the same rebuttal in his great treatise of Romans. In chapter 6, after he just talked about the greatness of God's grace and how God's grace covers over a multitude of our sins, he anticipates the question. Well, should we not sin more so that more grace may abound? 
If a little bit of grace covers over a little bit of sin, why don't we sin more so that more grace can be applied to our life? And he answers his question by simply saying, absolutely not. May it never be. By no means. Why? Don't you remember, he writes, that you are dead to your sin. It's no longer alive. It's been nailed to the cross. You don't bear it any longer. You are dead to your sin. You love God so much because of what he's done for you. You serve him so much. You worship him so much. You wouldn't dream of exploiting his goodness to you. So here the psalmist just reminds us that in God's salvation, there is new innocence. We, we are guilty in our sin. We are guilty as lawbreakers. To break one of God's commandments is to be guilty of breaking all of God's commandments. All of us sin, and we continue to fall short of the glory of God, but with him there is forgiveness. And because of that lavish forgiveness that he gives to you in salvation, there's no way you're going to try to respond with loose living. No, you want to please the Lord because he's been so good to you. So you sing and say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I don't know about you, but I stand amazed that Jesus loves wretches like you and like me. We are completely and utterly sinful and yet he gives us new life and he gives us new innocence. You come to the third stanza and the psalmist just simply says that salvation is a new day. You get to verses 5 and 6 and the scene shifts a third time. No longer is the psalmist in the sea. No longer is he there in a courtroom? But now this third scene is that the watchmen are standing guard at their post along the city wall. Now this imagery may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but in those days uh, every major city was fortified by a wall. The wall kept the bad guys out and kept the good guys in. The people of the city would be in the wall, and since they would be in the city limits, surrounded by that wall, they could rest well at night knowing that watchmen were posted along that wall. And the watchmen had one job to do, to watch for the enemy under the cover of night. Now, at nighttime, the enemy is harder to see, right? The enemy can be sneaky and shifty. The enemy can use the darkness to his advantage. And the watchmen would stand on guard and they would wait and they would wait and they would wait. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the sun to rise in the east because it's a new day. And when the new day comes, they were relieved of their post. When the new day came, then there was no more darkness. There was no more darkness for uh, them to, to, to wonder if the enemy was going to attack. Now it was light and they could see everything. Everything was fresh. The birds were singing. The sun was shining. Everything was brand new. And, and the watchmen would wait along the wall all night long. They would wait with hopeful anticipation. In two verses, the psalmist says five times, we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait. 
Now, here's the reality. There was nothing those watchmen can do that would cause the sun to rise any earlier than it needed to. They could not delay the rising of the sun. They could not preempt the rising of the sun. They were confident that the sun was going to rise tomorrow. Where they had that confidence? Well, there's never a day that's gone by that the sun didn't peak over the eastern horizon. It's happened every single day. Those watchmen were confident that the God that tucked the sun in the western horizon at night would allow that sun to peak over that eastern horizon every single day. They were confident that God would do this. They knew that the rising of the sun was dependent upon the Lord. So they waited with hopeful anticipation. They knew it was coming, and once it came, boy, they rejoiced. Because they had a brand new day. The psalmist is saying in a similar way, God's salvation is a new day. His salvation is as sure as the rising of the sun. His salvation is as confident in God. His salvation is as dependent upon the Lord as the rising of the sun in a brand new day. And when the sun comes, when salvation is given, it is glorious. It is splendid. It is spectacular. You know, there's something special about early in the morning, isn't there? Some of you, uh, you haven't seen early in the morning in a long time. But, but for others of you, you, you know that when you wake up, there's something about that. You, you just feel good. Now, you may not feel good for very long, but you feel good in the morning, right? I mean, you wake up and everything's fresh. Everything feels good. Everything is just beautiful. And, and there's something fresh about a new day. Hey, friend, there is something fresh about God's salvation. There's something so beautiful about it. There's something so splendid about it. There's something so spectacular about it. There is something that is so awesome that when, when, when God wakes you up unto his salvation, it is like a new perpetual day for all of eternity. And the psalmist is saying that salvation is like a new day. I wonder if there's anybody who could testify that the salvation that God has given you is like, like waking up in the morning knowing that you just made it safely and securely through another night, that God protected you, God guarded you. He made sure no harm came upon you, and he woke you up. And, and, and the first thing you want to think about is, God, thank you for a brand new day. As soon as your feet hit the floor, you just say, thank you, Jesus, for the ability to wake up this morning. And your salvation is as fresh as a brand new day. It is as confident and as secure and as certain as the rising of the sun in the east. Oh, the psalmist says that God's salvation that he gives to you, it's new life. You were drowning in a sea and God gave you new life. It is new innocence. You were guilty in a courtroom and yet God is eager to forgive. And your forgiveness is not groping around in darkness. God has illuminated his light of salvation. It's a brand new day and you're ready to go after it because God is so good to you. But the fourth scene, perhaps the most powerful scene, is that when you come to the fourth stanza, verses 7 and 8, salvation is new freedom. Now we go to the marketplace. We're no longer in the sea. We're no longer in the courtroom. We're no longer standing along the wall like watchmen who are waiting for the morning. But now we're in the marketplace. And specifically, we're at a slave market. And in the days of the psalmist, 
It is in a slave market that the word redemption finds its fullest meaning. The word redemption means to pay the price to set someone free. That's redemption. You know what it is to redeem a coupon. Somebody has purchased something for you. They gave you a coupon. All you have to do is just go and turn in the coupon. and It doesn't cost you a thing because somebody else paid for it. That's our understanding of redemption. But here for the psalmist of Psalm 130, this word redemption, it's the imagery of a slave market where somebody comes in and literally they purchase the price for their life and they set the slave free. And the psalmist says that's salvation. For God has set you free. You are a slave to your sin. You were a slave to your past. You were a slave to your uh, addictions. You were a slave to all of your bad habits. You were a slave, but God has set you free. Here in this fourth stanza, the psalmist turns outward because when salvation is given to you, salvation is not given for you to turn inward on yourself. Salvation is given so that you may turn outward to the lost world. Salvation has been given to you. So that you may go and proclaim it to a dead, floundering humanity. You come to this fourth stanza. And the psalmist simply says to his people and to his country, put your hope in God. What the psalmist says to his people, I say to my people. What the psalmist says to his nation, I say to my nation. Put your hope in God. If there was ever a time for our nation to be redeemed, it is right now. And the only way that this nation can be redeemed is to put their hope in God. The only way for my people, and when I say my people, I mean those who are followers of Jesus Christ. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, continue to put your hope in God. And for people who are not my people, people who are outside of Christ, I say unto them, put your hope in God. The only remedy for our sin problem is forgiveness that only God can give. And it's through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for he died so that we may live. We ought to put our hope in God. We put our hope in God. Because, according to this psalm, God is the one who has unfailing love. And God is the one who has full redemption. And God is the one who redeems us from all sin. Do you remember Israel's story? Israel had no hope but God did it. He liberated them from their Egyptian captivity through the servant named Moses. Moses led them, had the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh and the army behind them. God parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. As soon as they got through the riverbed, Pharaoh and his armies went in and the waters raged. And then Moses and Aaron led the people into the promised land. God did that. And this story of we have no hope but God did that is repeated over and over and over in Scripture. Noah had no hope of enabling his family to survive the worldwide flood, but God 
didn't. Joseph had no hope of getting himself out of that pit and placing himself in the palace, but God did it. Daniel had no hope of getting himself out of the lion's den, but God did it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no hope of getting out of the fiery furnace, but God did it. Paul had no hope of surviving being shipwrecked and snake bitten, but God did it. I'm here to tell you, you've got no hope to save yourself, but God has done it. God did it in the person of Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Jesus came. He was born in a rustic cave. He was born in a Bethlehem barn. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never committed any sin. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful attitude. He never had a sinful deed. He never had a sinful action. Jesus lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he got together about 12 rednecks and they changed the world upside down. And Jesus began a public ministry. It took place for about three years. And for three years, he preached. And for three years, he healed. And for three years, he did mighty miracles. At the end of that three-year period, his own people handed him over to religious rulers. They, in turn, gave him to the Roman government. And the Roman government crucified him as a criminal, not because of any sins he had committed, but because of the sins you have committed and the crimes I have committed. And on that faithful Friday, in the third decade of the first century, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross beam strapped to his back. He made his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there the Roman soldiers stretched him wide. They nailed him to a cross of wood, hoisted him into the air. And there he took the punishment that we deserve. He drank every last drop of God's holy hostility towards your sin and mine. What should have been poured out against you and poured out against me was meted upon Jesus. And Jesus declared, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. And on the third day, Jesus got up. On the third day, the, man, the dead man became alive again. On the third day, Jesus rose with all power in his hands. Later in that morning, some of the women came to the tomb to anoint his body. They asked the question, who's going to roll the stone away for us? And when they got there, they saw the stone was already rolled away. An angel was seated atop it. The angel asked them a question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. Come and see the place where he lay. Go and tell that he is alive for 2,000 years, friends. We've been coming and seeing, and we've been going and telling. We've been coming and seeing that Jesus is alive. He's so much alive, it convinces us to go and to tell a lost world that Jesus is alive. We've got no hope of saving ourselves, but God did it in Jesus Christ. One night, Martin Luther had a terrible dream. It was a nightmare of the devil attacking him. Satan brought out a scroll. He unwound the scroll, went line by line of all of the sins that Martin Luther had ever committed, finished the scroll. And Luther said, the devil, is that all you've got? And the devil said, no. And he brought out a second scroll, went line by line, sin by sin, everything that Luther had done and said and thought. He got done with the second scroll, pulled out a third scroll, unrolled the scroll, went line by line of all the sins Luther had ever committed. He got to the end of the three scrolls, and Luther said to the devil, there's one thing that you have forgotten. You have forgotten 
that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. How can Luther say that so confidently? Because what the psalmist says in Psalm 130, God is trustworthy because in him there is unfailing love. God is trustworthy because in him there is full redemption. God is trustworthy because in him there is the remission and the redemption from all our sins. The word unfailing love, it is a beautiful Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is chesed. In order to say it, you almost got a hakalugi to do it. It is a hard H, chesed. And the word chesed means loyal, covenantal love. God did not enter a bilateral contract with you saying, if you keep up your end of the bargain, I'll keep up mine of the bargain. God didn't do that because he knows you can't keep up your end of the bargain. He entered into a unilateral covenant with us. What does that mean? It means that God is going to shoulder all of the responsibility. That God is going to escort us to the finish line and beyond. God says, I know you can't keep your end up, but I certainly can keep my end up. So I have unfailing love. This covenant I make with you is because of my chesed. It's because of my loyal love. It's because of my unfailing love. Friend, I came to tell you, God cannot fail. When it comes to your salvation, it's in the hands of the Lord. And God cannot fail. Why? Because he has unfailing love. He has full redemption. I like what King Jimmy says. In King James Version, it simply says, in him there is plenteous redemption. That Jesus has full redemption. He has plenteous redemption. Not partial redemption, not limited redemption, not some redemption, but he has full redemption. That when God goes to his silo of redemption, he has enough to cover all of your sins, all of your mess-ups, all of your mistake. His mercy is more. His mercy is fresh with each new day. Hey friend, I came to tell you that Jesus has full redemption. And Jesus also provides redemption from all our sin. Not some of it. Not just the big ones. Not just the past ones. But all our sin is cleansed by Christ. Past, present, and future. What Luther said to the devil, you and I need to say to the devil, hey devil, you've forgotten one important fact. That in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all my sin. So what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, I came to tell you that Jesus' pure, precious blood has been shed so that you may be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And God was so eager to give you his salvation that he gave you new freedom in Jesus. Jesus Christ. You were guilty as charged. Now you are free indeed. In Jesus you have plenteous redemption. You have full redemption in Christ. Hey friend, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today can be the day of your salvation. We're going to sing a song. As soon as we sing that song, if you've never expressed your need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, today can be your day. You just come forward. 
take a minister by the hand and say, Pastor, I need that forgiveness. I, I need to accept what Jesus did for me on the cross. If you are here today and you are a believer, then I'm going to tell you that um, if Jesus is stuffed in you, then inevitably Jesus will stick out of you. So you've got to be eager in evangelism. I could give you all the stats, and the stats seem to illustrate that God's people are not that eager in evangelism. In fact, the vast majority of us have never shared our faith with anyone. But I'm not going to give you all those stats. This morning, I simply want to ask this. Hey, when was the last time that you shared what Jesus has done for you with somebody else? If you're a believer in Christ today, can you make a commitment that, Lord, this week, I'm going to share my faith with at least one person? I may call that one person my spouse. Maybe it's a husband or a wife. I may call that one person a my child, a son or a daughter, or maybe even a grandchild. I may call that one person a classmate or a teammate, or maybe uh, somebody who works with me in the office, or maybe it's a complete stranger. But Lord, you have a divine appointment with me and that individual. Lord, this week, I want to share my faith with somebody. I just want to tell them how good you are, because you've given me new life, and you give me new innocence, and you give me a new day, and you give me new freedom, and I just want to share that with somebody. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, as soon as I pray and I say amen, I want you to stand up and come forward and accept Christ as Savior and Lord, all right? And if you are a believer, as soon as I get done praying, I want you to stand up and some of you just need to come forward and say, God, I make a commitment to you this week. I'm going to do my best to share the faith that you've given to me with somebody else because, Lord, if you've given me your salvation, it is not for me to turn inward, but it's for me to turn outward to a lost and dying world. I receive your salvation to share it and to give it away because a God-built disciple is one who's eager in evangelism. Listen, friend, let the image make an indelible impression upon your life. If Jesus has been stuffed in you, Inevitably, he's got to stick out of you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you give for us and to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's someone here who's never accepted you as Savior, Lord, let today be the day of salvation. Father, for those of us who are believers, let us today make a commitment to you that we will share this good news with at least one person this week. Lord, for some that scares us to death, but Lord, we pray that you will empower us and embolden us. And Lord, help us to be eager in evangelism. Let us be the disciples that you build. In Jesus' name, amen.